Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Hi friends, this is Engage 360 from Denver Seminary and I'm Don Payne, joined today by our provost and dean as a co-host, Dr. Lynn Kowick. Welcome, Lynn. Hi, Don. It's great to be with you talking to our guest today. Yeah, it is. Our guest this week is Dr. Joey Dodson. And Joey joined the Denver Seminary faculty in July of 2019 after uh, serving at Washtenaw Baptist University in Arkansas, I think since 2008. Is that correct, Joey? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. Well, welcome. Glad to have you on the podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Uh, Joey is one of the more recent uh, additions to the Denver Seminary faculty, not the most recent, but one of the more recent, and has already uh, made quite an impact on, on lots of students. He is serving here as Associate Professor of New Testament, and one of the reasons that we wanted to have Lynn as co-host this time is that, as many of you would know, Lynn is an internationally known New Testament scholar in her own right, and I thought it would be a lot easier to have Lynn and Joey do a sort of New Testament nerd fest. Um, <laughs> and I'll kind of sit here and nod as if I know what they're talking about. And you just have to know that unless you've seen New Testament scholars nerd out, you really don't know what fun is. That's true. Thank you for, for confirming what I knew to be true anyway. <laughs> Let me tell you a little bit about Joey Dodson, because uh, we want you to get to know him and, and learn from him and enjoy him as we do. Uh, maybe the most important thing to know about Joey Dodson, apart from his degrees and his writings, is that he is my office next door neighbor. Uh, we're doing this on Zoom, so of course you can't see <laughs> us, but what I'm looking at behind Joey's back is actually the, the wall that he and I share. <laughs> and it is so gratifying to have somebody else on the faculty who regularly wears boots <laughs> and and that that helps me so much so first of all joey just thanks for that and we can kind of quit the conversation now but there, there's joey, nothing there's nothing really to say is there i mean uh, you know I, there's just as uh as i'm not right down the hall from you but nevertheless i can hear the clomp 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 uh, you know us. you're coming so <laughs> these boots are made for walking exactly yeah, Joey uh, finished his PhD from the University of Aberdeen. And let me tell you a little bit about his, uh, his writing. His most recent books are a, what called a little book for New Testament scholars that he uh, co-authored with Randolph Richards in 2017. And then he's co-edited a couple of volumes uh, with David Briones. Is that how you say his name, Briones? Sure. He's such a nice guy. Even if you said it inc incorrectly, he wouldn't. Correct. Okay, well, don't tell him if I mispronounced <laughs> it. But uh, with David Briones, Joey uh, edited two volumes. One is entitled Paul and Seneca in Dialogue uh, in 2017, and the other one is Paul and the Giants of Philosophy in 2019. And currently, I think you're working on two commentaries. Is that correct? One on Romans and one on Colossians Philemon? Correct. I, I guess, first of all, Joey, tell us a little bit about how you found your way into the vocation of scholarship in general and into New Testament scholarship in particular. And Lynn may have some more specific questions about that. Sure. Yeah. Uh, when I was 16, going on 17, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife of 25 years, uh, led me to the Lord. And he who has been forgiven much, loves much. And so I had a lot, <laughs> a lot of zeal, but a little bitty knowledge. And yeah. uh, so 
uh, the Lord called me to actually Washtenaw Baptist University as a student. And I went there and uh, at that time, all I knew really was the gospel. I thought I could either be a pastor or an evangelist. And I really liked uh, doing the traveling evangelist thing. And so uh, that was my plan uh, was to be just the itinerant um, evangelist. Uh, but my sophomore year, I took a Greek class uh, with my mentor at that time, uh, Scott Duvall. And uh, at the end of that, he approached me and said, Joey, you have a lot of noise which I think his way of saying, you're really loud and obnoxious and being next to me, uh, you don't even have to be next to me to know that that's still the case. But he says, you have a lot of noise, but I think if you continued on with Greek, uh, it would give you some volume. And so he invited me to take his intensive course translating through Ephesians and that summer and started going through that and had never encountered the word of God like that. And it just began to just mark me. Uh, it's almost like Ephesians came off the page and became incarnate. Um, as I was struggling uh, through the grammar and uh, all the vocabulary, I, I found myself almost memorizing Ephesians, but not just that, but just uh, it just percolating in my life. And at that intensive course, I thought, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to try to recreate this uh, for future pastors, evangelists, missionaries, pastors, and teachers. And so at that point, uh, I knew that I wanted to be a New Testament professor. And how do you feel then, Joey, when I was looking at what, um, what you worked on with your dissertation, you looked at the book of, of uh, Wisdom and mm. Romans. Um, it was published, I think, with the title uh, Powers of Personification. How, how do you get from uh, a zealous, uh, a zealous <laughs> youth to, to the book of Wisdom and Romans? Yeah, great question. So I had the toss up. I love the Old Testament uh, just as much as I love the New Testament. And my son, who's 10 years old, he's on the autism spectrum. And the other day I came home and he was watching the Bible Project for Exodus. And I said, oh, I love the Bible Project, especially what they do in uh, the Old Testament. And he looked at me and said, Old Testament? I think you mean Gold Testament because it's just full of treasure. And, and I found that. Um, I love the Old and the New Testament. I love Greek and I love Hebrew. Uh, but by doing New Testament, I could work in both. Uh, but what I began to realize as I dove into the New Testament is that these New Testament authors, they weren't looking directly at the Old Testament, but they were looking at the Old Testament through the lenses of the Apocrypha, through Second Temple literature. And so if I really wanted to understand the New Testament, then I needed to understand the Old Testament. If I needed to understand the New Testament, then I need to understand how Second Temple Judaism and the literature of that time was interpreting the Old Testament. And so that's kind of what led me into it. I love Romans. Uh, that's my bread and butter. I even named one of my sons, uh, his middle name is Roman, um, after the letter. And I knew I wanted to do something in Romans. Uh, most scholars believe that when Paul writes Romans, uh, the wisdom of Solomon is on the desk, whether it's center or whether it's off to the side. And uh, so I wanted to do something where Paul was interacting with uh, one of those Second Temple literature works um, in, in their interpretation of the Old Testament. And so uh, John Barclay uh, was at a conference and he told me, he says, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done with Romans and the Wisdom of Solomon. And I think the world of John Barclay, I'm quite the fanboy of his. And so uh, that, it was almost like it came down from heaven. You know, as you, as I've looked at the titles that you've worked on and you're talking about uh, reading Paul's letter to the Romans in the context of Second Temple Judaism, that is mm -hmm. from about, what would you say, 300 BC to... Uh, well, to the early rabbinic period, mm -hmm. so the time of, of Paul, first and second century. Uh, it sounds to me like you like to have uh, the New Testament text in conversation. So mm -hmm. you, in your dissertation, you were in conversation with another Jewish author 
and, and its text. But then you started to also have Paul in conversation with Seneca or it, with uh, philosophy of the day. And mm -hmm. I have to say that while it, it makes, it, it can make more sense, I think, to people that you're having Paul converse with other Jews around that time. Mm -hmm. Why are you now getting into looking at Paul and the philosophers of the day, like Seneca, mm -hmm. who would have lived about the same time as Paul? Good. So earlier I said, if I really want to understand the New Testament, I had to understand the Old Testament. If I really want to understand the Old Testament, I had to understand the Second Temple literature. And if I really want to understand the Second Temple literature, then I need to understand Greco-Roman philosophy that was surrounding it because it had been influenced by that. And uh, so uh, I put Paul in conversation with this Jewish author, but I realized that the Jewish author had been greatly influenced by Greco-Roman philosophy. And as you know, so has Paul. And so basically I keep one foot in Paul and I'll pivot back to a Jewish author in conversation. Right now I'm working with Paul and for Maccabees. Uh, and then I'll shift over to a Greco-Roman philosopher, usually a, a Roman Stoic, uh, to see uh, them in dialogue. So what part of it, if Paul and the author of Wisdom of Solomon were having coffee, uh, Ethiopian coffee, I would hope, uh, at, at a coffee shop, what would their conversations look like and see those similarities and how those similarities make Paul's gospel poignant um, that looking at the point of differences so that we can understand uh, the power of the gospel in a way that we haven't before. And so by putting, putting them in conversation, I see both coherence, uh, where Paul is, uh, in a sense, uh, adopting or using uh, uh, Greco-Roman philosophy and what he's inherited from his Jewish uh, brothers and sisters, and then how he's, how the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is using him, that, using that in order to form and make disciples of the church. Give us some examples of, of where and how Paul draws on some of the Roman philosophers, particularly Seneca. Sure, yeah. Uh, so in Philippians 4, when Paul says, uh, I've learned to be content, I've learned the secret of contentment, uh, when he goes on in Philippians, and I, I hesitate saying Philippians in front of Lynn, because this is uh, one of her areas of expertise, but when he goes on and gives this list, you know, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, think upon these things. Uh, th this terminology is very stoic. Um, they're vocabulary that Paul doesn't use elsewhere. Now, I'm not sure that Paul directly draws from Seneca. Uh, Paul grew up in Tarsus, which is kind of like a modern Ivy League town. Uh, they had one of the top gymnasiums, kind of like the Harvard or the Oxford uh, of the, their days. And so he probably was familiar with some of the stoicism. Maybe um, it was kind of in the air. Maybe it was in the graffiti uh, of the day. So there would be some similarities, but uh, Seneca wrote in Latin. We're not quite sure how much Paul, time Paul spent in the Latin, but uh, we know that Seneca's brother was Gallio, who was the governor in Corinth, uh, who adjudicated on behalf of Paul and Christianity there in Acts chapter 18. And so Paul actually had uh, interaction with Gallio. Uh, if we look at Luke's, uh, gospel, uh, Luke's uh, second uh, letter, uh, his uh, book of Acts, we see that uh, in the end, Paul ends up in Rome. He's appealed to Caesar. And actually, when he appeals to Caesar, that dating, uh, he actually probably wouldn't have gone up before Nero, uh, but Seneca, who was Nero's right-hand man at the time. Uh, Seneca was kind of a young buck uh, chasing uh, everything under the sun rather than uh, virtue at the time. And so, uh, yeah. And, and so, again, it's not looking at how Paul drew directly from these, but putting them in conversation and dialogue. And so, uh, what is what is it in Seneca that uh, maybe, like C.S. Lewis says, it gives us kind of the candle, the lights of the gospel that led the, the Greeks and the Romans uh, to the point uh, where we have uh, the sunrise of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yeah, I was going to uh, add one of the things that uh, you're, you're much more versed in Seneca than I am, but I did some work with Seneca's letters 
to his mm -hmm. friend Lucilius, and I particularly yeah. looked at um, how Seneca talked about torture and tr actually trying to avoid torture mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the humiliation that came with that and the idea of endurance being not uh, a virtue, but rather something that uh, indicated that people had power over you. Mm -hmm. And then looking at Romans, Romans 8, and how Paul um, really encourages Christians, mm -hmm. not just there in Romans 8, everywhere, to endure. Mm -hmm. And how the Christians took, sometimes took a, uh, an idea or a um, perspective from the Stoics and turned it upside down. Like, in this case, um, endurance. Endurance is something mm -hmm. good, not mm -hmm. something that only slaves would have. Did you find something in uh, Seneca or perhaps Epictetus or another of the philosophers mm -hmm. where their idea, as you pondered it more, opened your eyes to the, the radicalness of mm -hmm. the gospel? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. Thank you for setting me up with that. Uh, Seneca actually talks about himself being crucified. Uh, similar, using that metaphor. So like what we see Paul saying in Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, not I, but Christ that lives within me. Uh, this would have take, would have been quite radical, scandalous for a Roman citizen to refer to him or herself as being crucified. Uh, but even more so for Seneca, who was on the Senate uh, to say this. And he says that he has been crucified. Uh, both of them are doing it in, uh, in the face of their opponents, their haters, these agitators, um, and both of them actually refer to the cross as representing sin, sinful passions and desires. Um, and just like Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, Paul, uh, Seneca says, I've been crucified with the great philosophers, Plato, Socrates, and Cato. And so you have this great similarities. And Seneca says, the problem is that I'm on my cross and I'm trying to get off of it. I'm on my sinful passions, but while I'm trying to get off of it, uh, there's these people who love to lay on not just one crosses, but as many crosses as they can get on and spit at me and heckle me and uh, vilify me while I'm trying to get off. And so uh, you have those great similarities, same context. Seneca and Paul were writing about the same time. Seneca was born probably about the same time that Jesus was born, spent some time in Egypt. Uh, but anyway, they're, they're writing from the, in the same context and they're both using the cross as a metaphor for sin. But of course, as uh, you and our listeners know, for Paul, uh, sin is not, uh, the cross is not the place where sin dwells. The cross is the place where sin goes to die. Uh, for Paul, now it, we are led by the Spirit of God, so that we have been set free. It's our freedom God has set us free. And so because we belong to Christ, we have crucified our sins and our passions. We have been crucified to the world, and the world has been crucified to us. And so despite their great similarities, same context, same metaphor, uh, same uh, even almost uh, vocabulary, even though it's Greek and Latin, the point of distance is that now Paul has a swagger uh, that uh, one can actually, can actually live free from their simple desires um, if they're led by the Spirit. And so following those similarities lead to that great divide. And as far as I know, and Lynn, you can correct me, or, and Don, if you know as well, um, I don't know of anyone else in the ancient world that would use the cross as a metaphor uh, for sin uh, before Paul or during Paul besides Seneca. Mm -hmm. Well, that's kind of a perfect setup for the, the fairly common question about Romans six and seven, the, the whole dead to sin, and then how that, fo how Paul, Paul follows on that in <laughs> Romans seven, uh, you know, what, what, whether that's referring to the contemporary Christian life or the current Christian experience or, 
some other kind of experience. So how, how does that set you up to answer that question? If it does. Did, did one of my students put you up to that question? No, no, they didn't. I'm, and I'm anxious. Yeah, we might Roman have a couple seven. different yeah, views right. here, which will I be sure ho- I fun sure for hope our so, listeners. I sure hope you're on my side because I, uh, you know, I, I grew up uh, just hearing the that Paul's talking about himself. The things I want to do, I do not do. Uh, the things I don't want to do, ah, that's what I find myself doing. Oh, what a wretch! I'm sold as a slave. Uh, that this is just the normal Christian life. This is what we'd expect. If Paul can't overcome sin, then how can we ever overcome sin? And it wasn't until seminary that uh, I was so excited. I got this commentary by uh, finally someone that wasn't a white man. Uh, and uh, it was a, 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 an Asian name, Mu. And I was like, wow, finally I'm reading something in seminary that's not by a white guy. But Lynn is laughing because Doug Moo is like one of the whitest guys that, that you've ever <laughs> met. But he just has a, a, a different last name. But I read through his commentary, the NICNT, the New International Commentary of the New Testament on Romans. And for the very first time in my 20-something years, had I heard that there actually was another option that this may not be Paul referring to um, his own post-Christian life, but possibly something else. Either Paul might be referring to himself before he was a Christian. Uh, Possibly Paul uh, was using uh, this speech and act, um, this kind of impersonation. If I were to say to you, uh, Don, I like your shoes. Those look like wonderful shoes. I remember my first pair of shoes. My mama said they were magic shoes. Mama said they'd take me anywhere. I never said who this person is, but all of us know because of the context clues that I'm talking about, Forrest, Forrest Gump. Uh, and so uh, it's, and this was actually the, the most dominant way to interpret this uh, in the early church fathers. It wasn't until Augustine uh, that the, this idea of, this, of Paul talking about the normative Christian life uh, became that. And so I am convinced, wholly convinced, very passionate about it. That, uh, and so my students, uh, it's almost like welcome to the bonfire, Scarecrow, uh, when anyone <laughs> brings this passion uh, passage up. Because if you look at Romans 7 and lie to Romans 6 and lie to Romans 8, if you look at uh, Romans 7 and lie to what Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament, if you look at what, Paul's, uh, what Romans 7 says in light of everything else with respect to uh, moral progression and freedom from sin, uh, it would be the outlier. And so my hope uh, for my students is to let them really know that when it comes to overcoming the flesh, when it comes to uh, walking by the spirit, um, Romans 7 is, because it's so highly debated, it probably shouldn't be the place that we should start. We should go to those that are less debated and uh, uh, work from there on. And if you see, like I mentioned earlier, Galatians 5:16, Paul says, uh, walk by the power of the spirit and you will not ever, 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 or as we would say in Junction City, Arkansas, where I grew up, uh, you ain't never uh, the double negative uh, going to fulfill the desires of the sinful nature. Uh, anyone who belongs to Christ, who's led by the spirit, has crucified their flesh and their passions. And so what we see in Romans 6 is Paul making it clear, sin is no longer the boss of me. And so Romans 7 is not about the Christian life. Instead, it's about the exoneration of the law. Uh, what's up with this Old Testament law in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I can go on and on, but I'll stop right there and see if you guys, see if Lynn wants to throw anything or fire me now. No, I, uh, Was he fired? I I'm, I'm another scarecrow like you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, um, I think that, uh, Romans six makes it very clear. We are no longer slaves to sin anymore, but we're slaves mm-hmm. to God. So Romans seven is not saying that we'll never have, uh, sinful thoughts and that we won't ever succumb to temptation anymore. But I think what it, for me, as I read it, I think that uh, Paul throughout Romans it has two people groups in mind, mm-hmm. the Jew and the Gentile, that are, are just part of his culture and reality and the, and the reality of his churches. And they're, for a Jew, I think a Jew in Paul's time could say that I desire to do 
God's law. In my inmost heart, I desire that. Um, and I think what sometimes happens in um, later exegesis is they forget about the Jew Gentile and they mm -hmm. are just using the category believer, unbeliever. And when you right. use those two categories, then it gets a little bit harder to mm -hmm. interpret seven. But I think if you can recognize that Paul knows people who desire God's um, to follow God's law mm. because they're Jews, um, then it makes it easier to see that he's actually reflecting on, like you say, the role of the law, which is mm -hmm. a huge concern throughout um, the book of Romans and, and its place because it is God's self-revelation. So how, how are we to now as a group that is made up of Jew and Gentile trusting in Christ, how do we live into God's self-revelation um, now made most apparent through life in the spirit, which is chapter mm -hmm. eight. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, that's where I would say uh, seven mm -hmm. is also when I have taught on this, sometimes students uh, get, get real worried about it because they feel like they, they have to then be perfect. And that's mm -hmm. not at all the conclusion that should come from what mm -hmm. you and I are talking about uh, mm -hmm. in terms of the exegesis of chapter seven. Chapter seven is should be just really encouraging that um, that it's not about us. It's also mm -hmm. not about the law. The law is not doing heavy lifting. We don't have to do heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. There is no condemnation now for those who yeah. are in Christ. Right. That's mm -hmm. where we get to chapter eight. So <laughs> I think it, people shouldn't worry about this uh, about our interpretation in as much as um, we're not saying people should be perfect. Mm -hmm just that, that we are forgiven and we are no longer slaves to sin. We can say no mm. to That's sin. That's right. Yeah. yeah. No, well, I agree with you. Yeah, but, to, to the point you raised a moment ago, Joey, uh, when Paul says, if you walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh mm -hmm. or the desires of the flesh. Mm -hmm. that, that is, in a sense, a real binary, though he's not speaking about some kind of c consistent all or nothing that's right. mode of life, uh, a perfectionistic mode of life, but he is positing. I mean, tell me if, if uh, you see this differently. He, he is positing a sort of binary equation where if you are walking in the spirit, you will not do this. Now, mm. that of course can admit that there, there will be times when I'm not walking in the spirit, mm. in which, mm -hmm. in which cases, yeah, you know, I, I may, I may sin, I will sin. Mm. Yeah. But when I'm walking in the spirit, I won't do this and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Is that mm -hmm. a fair way or is that overly simplistic? No, I think that's definitely the case. Uh, Paul's a realist. He goes on to say, now I realize that the flesh goes against the spirit and the spirit goes against the flesh so that you don't do what you want to do. Uh, if, uh, if, if this was the easy case, then Paul wouldn't have to be writing this letter to the Galatians in the first place. And okay. I do think that Paul would say that, yes, uh, to borrow from Peter, if I can use uh, borrow Peter from Paul, uh, we have to wage, uh, we have to abstain from the sinful desires that wage war against our soul. Uh, Paul understands temptation. He understands those, those desires. And because he goes on in Galatians 6 to say, if anyone is caught in a specific trespass, then those of you who are spiritual should restore this person uh, and watching out that you don't fall in that temptation itself. So I think Romans 7, uh, I think Paul would definitely admit we are attacked, we struggle. Uh, Polycarp even translates that uh, Galatians 5 passages, uh, the spirit wars against the flesh. And, and, and so we know that war. But what we see in Romans 7 is no mention of the Holy Spirit. What we see in Romans 7 is an utter defeat uh, by this. And so I, I think I agree with you, Lynn. I think Paul is talking about 
a, a Jew underneath the law um, in Romans 7, but not a converted Jew. And Paul, um, that's been set free. Uh, Lynn brought up Romans 8.1. Uh, Therefore, there's no, now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set blank free from the law of sin and death. Has set, it could be you free. Maybe you translated that. that. If there's a textual variant there. Um, if it's you, it's not like Don, you and I come from Texas. Uh, it's not a y'all, which is what Paul usually uses. Um, it's not has set y'all, you Christians free. Uh, it, it's set, uh, singular, has set you individuals. So if this is the case, then Paul is talking back to the I in Romans 7 and saying, now you um, have been set free. Another translation, and I, I think maybe the King James has, just, has set me free from the law of sin and death. And if that's the case, then if it is Paul talking about himself, it would be post pre-conversion in Romans 7. But now I've been set free. Um, and we, Lynn brought up Romans 6. I think we can also go to Romans 8, where Paul goes on to talk about don't walk according to the flesh anymore. Now you walk according to the spirit and you are no longer obligated to fulfill the desires of the sinful nature. And so, yes, we sin. Yes, we have this temptation, but we're no longer in bondage. Uh, we're no longer impotent before sin uh, because we have the spirit of God. And to borrow from Jesus uh, rather than from Peter this time, uh, greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And no temptation has seized us except what is common. And God's going to provide a way, way out when we take it. Yeah. You're can here. I, um, yeah. Can I pick up on some language that we all have been using, the language of slavery? Because Paul uses that. Mm-hmm. He uses it in a metaphorical sense in chapter mm-hmm. six. Um, but he also knew real slaves. Um, there were members in his, uh, in his congregations that mm-hmm. were slaves. And uh, Don mentioned at the beginning of our podcast that you're working on a commentary that includes Colossians and Philemon, where there we have real slavery Mm. mentioned. And in this particular moment in our country's history, where we are convulsing um, over the um, terrible events that have happened that are racially charged, Mm. what what are some of the words of grace that you think can come from Mm. Romans or Colossians and Philemon, especially Colossians and Philemon, who have been, Mm. those texts have been used to validate the institution Mm. of slavery. Mm -hmm. Um, What, how instead should we be seeing those? Yeah. And can I bring in Ephesians as well, since Ephesians and Colossians are kind of a twin letter, but uh, I really think that, uh, and let me just kind of say this, I am a white male. And so when we talk about uh, the racism that's out there and all the things that are happening with uh, Floyd and uh, Arbery and so on and so forth, uh, I need to be listening more than I am speaking to borrow from James. I need to be quick as uh, quick to uh, listen and slow to speak. Uh, I realize that uh, I am trying to, I'm trying to grasp this and understand. Uh, But I think that the, the biggest blame of what's happening in Minneapolis, the biggest blame of what's happening in Seattle, the biggest blame of what's happening in Atlanta doesn't fall on the president. It doesn't fall on the government. Instead, it falls on the church. I think if we want to ask why is this happening, we need to look in our own reflection. uh, Because if we understand Ephesians, if we understand Colossians, uh, we would understand that the gospel is not just about God saving individuals from hell. It's not just God forgiving us of our sins, but the full orb gospel is uh, tearing down the walls of racism. Insert Ephesians chapter two, the baptismal formula to bring in Galatians and Colossians. Paul's going to repeat this in Colossians three is that in Christ. There's neither, there's no longer a slave 
nor free, Greek nor Jew, black nor white, Scythia. And, and Christ came to tear down those walls of racism, to take those far and near that were hostile to one another, who have been uh, conformed to the pattern of the world and the racism and the hatred and hostility, and to bring them together in the one person, Jesus Christ. And because I think we as a church have only preached the, the half of the gospel, uh, to borrow from uh, one theologian, uh, we, we've kind of uh, inoculated um, America with uh, a, a diet version of the gospel with a half gospel so that the, now they're immune to this full gospel. And so if we as a church can't tear down those walls of racism with the power of the Holy Spirit, by the blood of Jesus Christ, uh, with the great holy scriptures that we have, how do we expect our nation ever to do so? And so I think that Paul is very subversive in Colossians, especially if we take in, uh, if we look at his habit and, and his heart. I think uh, for Paul, uh, he doesn't have a file yet on how to eradicate uh, slavery. That's, as you know, and you've written on this much more than I have, uh, but uh, he does understand that the power of the gospel and uh, working towards uh, the, the parousia the, 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 of Jesus Christ. And so, uh, and, and in Philemon, I think you see Paul very, very subversive. I, I think he's saying, hey, let him go, let him go, let him go. Um, I, I'm your daddy. I, you know, I brought you in this world. I'll take you out is what my father used to say. And so when Paul's talking about Anismus uh, to Philemon, he's not just saying this to Philemon, but he's saying it to the whole church so they can ease drop. And so I think Paul is putting some pressure on Philemon to do that. But I think if we understand, uh, we read Ephesians and Colossians, Paul talks about how the fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ. The fullness of the deity dwells in Jesus Christ. And guess what? The fullness of, the, of, the, of Jesus Christ dwells within the church. And uh, that is this polychromatic. It's not just individual. It's not just white people. It's not just black people. It's not just Asians or Hispanics. I mean, instead, it's this beautiful mosaic that God then takes from the church, uh, takes the church and he puts it in front of the face of the cosmological demonic, the demonic powers and says, uh, booyah, na 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 hey, hey, goodbye. And so um, as long as uh, in America, we have white people worshiping white people, Asians with Asians, blacks with blacks, and Hispanics with Hispanics, we're testifying to the world that the color of our skin uh, unites us more than the blood of Jesus Christ. And uh, so I, I think, uh, I don't know the answers to uh, the laws that we need to pass and uh, how, how to do with this, but I do know that uh, for the church, we have to get back to Paul's gospel, that is to tear down uh, these walls of racism and the, the hate and the backbiting that is connected. I'm, I'm really glad you used that word subversive. That, that word was kind of floating around in my mind uh, already. And that's such an important word right now, because if we to pick up on something else you just said, Joey, if if Christians, if the church thinks that the our only recourse is wholesale overthrow of the problem, wholesale you know scrape and rebuild of what's wrong, uh, we're going to end up with a lot of hopelessness. But Paul had lots of hope because, well, uh, to your point, he may not have known how to fix that whole problem all at once, but he was constantly subversive. And I, I wonder whether we underestimate the power of gospel subversion, which mm. is living out the gospel in all kinds of you know, big and little ways, whatever ways we can. But mm. you know, by, by definition, subversive is a sort of under the waterline work that yeah. goes a, sometimes unnoticed, but very powerful nonetheless. And I, and I think it's going to cost something uh, to those who have... Um, not felt uncomfortable so far. And if I can pull on Romans a bit, mm -hmm. you know, we, we charge ahead in Romans uh, and it starts to get pretty heavy. And then we're in chapter seven and then chapter eight and oh my <laughs> word, then we hit nine mm -hmm. through 11 and mm -hmm. it just exhausts us. So by the time mm -hmm. we get 
to chapter 12, where we are called to be living sacrifices, we're exhausted and we don't really pay that much attention. Chapter 13, well, maybe, you know, about government and stuff, but then 14, there's so much meat in that about how we are to relate to each other. I know you're uh, planning to write uh, a commentary on Romans. Talk to us a little bit about the importance of chapter 14 mm -hmm. in the book of Romans. Very good. Well, let me start where you started with the Romans 12. Uh, often we get past Romans 9 through 11. Uh, we get to the end of Romans 11 and Paul has this litany of these great scriptures. And what is that, what's that litany about? It's about God bringing together, reconciling Jews and Gentiles. And so because we have chapters, we miss that when Paul says that, therefore, as we teach our students, we look and see what it's there for. It sounds cheesy, but uh, it helps our students to look back uh, in view of God's mercies. What is that mercy? It's God bringing together Jews and Gentiles who had so much hostility and hatred, animosity between them. And he says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies, plural, as a living sacrifice, singular. This is your spiritual act of worship. And so when Paul says your bodies, he's saying Jews and Gentile bodies as believers coming together as one living sacrifice. And uh, if I can paraphrase the Greek, Paul says, God says that, ah, that smells good uh, to him. When these, uh, these who are far, the, this, uh, these racial divisions are brought together. And this is what that spiritual act of worship um, looks like. This is one thing that Christ was doing uh, to bring that on. And so um, uh, one of our friends that uh, Lynn and I have in uh, common is uh, Scott McKnight. And he has a book, uh, Reading Romans Backwards. Fantastic book we use as a textbook here. And uh, he says, often we uh, need to start with uh, Romans 14 through 16, uh, because this is where Paul's leading. And so we go to Romans, we're looking at Paul, the theologian, because there's so much great theology there. We go to Romans and we see Paul as the missionary. He's writing this because he wants God to send him to, to Spain. He wants the Romans to send him to Spain. We look at uh, Paul as, you know, the salvation history, trying to work out the problems of the Jews or the apologists. But uh, Scott McKnight says, well, actually, uh, Paul's a pastor here. Paul's writing these things. He does Romans 1 through 11 because uh, there's racial division inside of the church. And for Paul, it's not just in Romans. We can go back to Galatians. If you remember, Paul has such a swagger in Galatians 1. Man, the gospel, no, I didn't get the gospel from anybody but Jesus Christ and him alone. This is my gospel. God, God's going to judge the entire world by my gospel. And then he says, but then I went to James and Peter and I, I submitted my gospel to them, lest I run my race in vain. And, and Lynn, you may have a different interpretation of this, but uh, that running that race in vain, I think for Paul, even though his gospel is divine and had been revealed to him uh, by Jesus Christ, uh, if his gospel didn't lead to the unity of the Jews and the Gentile believers, then he felt like he was running his race in vain. And so same thing with Romans. Uh, no matter how great his gospel is, no matter how he deals with Romans 7 and uh, these great, uh, the, the, the great uh, way to live a Christian life, it doesn't love, if it leads to division in the Roman churches among, among, among racial lines, then he's run his race in vain. And so, uh, yeah, I think uh, I agree with uh, Scott uh, McKnight that if we truly want to understand where Paul's, uh, if we want to begin with the end in mind, uh, that helps us see Romans in a whole new light. And again, in my background where uh, we didn't think about other cultures unless we were going to uh, overseas, uh, that we, we didn't really concern ourselves with them, but, and they would just be meeting, uh, and here I'm using us and them. See, that's terrible uh, pronouns, but uh, our, my brothers and sisters from other cultures, uh, they, they, they weren't um, involved in our, our church because it was about saving souls rather than uh, bringing all the peoples of Christ together, every tongue, every tribe, every nation, and worship them like we see in Revelation. This is such. This is an example, Joey, of how scholarship preaches the gospel, which is what it ought to be. 
I, I, I love listening to you and, and your passion for all of this. And, um, you know, how many times, I'll ask this rhetorically, how many times do people listen to scholarly lectures and want to either get on their knees or stand up and, mm-hmm. and praise the Lord? And this is, this is scholarship that will do that. So good on you, brother. What do you think are some of the big issues, the, the hot issues, the most important issues going on right now in New mm-hmm. Testament studies overall? Uh, and, and, you know, it, it's funny I'm speaking because Lynn is, uh, she's so much more uh, ahead of me in the, these areas. And so I feel bad. I'm like, are you sure you want to hear from me? You should be listening to my boss. Uh, but uh, for, for me and Lynn, please feel free to uh, correct or uh, add to this or whatever. But uh, one of the greatest things about uh, my life um, is that uh, I was born in the time where it was one of the most significant uh, Pauline uh, watershed events. Uh, in the, the history of interpretation since probably Luther. And that was E.P. Sanders wrote Paul and Palestinian Judaism. And that kind of gave birth to the new perspective on Paul. And that's kind of been the king of the hill uh, for a long time. But uh, John Barclay, that I mentioned this the third time, I think, uh, he wrote a book uh, this past, uh, I guess, three or f- about five years ago now, uh, that basically says that we had misunderstood the word grace. And uh, we, it's almost like in The Prince's Bride. We have foster kids in our home right now, and I introduced them to The Prince's Bride last night. I feel like that's a win as a foster parent. But, uh, (laughs) you know, we keep using that word. It doesn't mean what we think it means. And so whereas E.P. Sanders comes and says, hey, in contrast to what Luther says, that Luther comes and says that Judaism was a legalistic, it was about the law, but Christianity was about uh, grace. Um, And he goes back and looks at all that second simple literature that Lynn and I was talking about and says, there's grace everywhere. And John Barclay, and that, that's kind of been, again, what's been uh, the, the MO of New Testament scholarship since then. But John Barclay comes and says, true, 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 true. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, there is grace all over uh, Judaism, but they're defining grace, charis, gift, um, in a different way than Paul is defining it. And what's interesting, uh, according to Barclay, and I'm wholly on board, is that the way that the Jews, uh, quote unquote, the, the, the Jewish uh, literature was defining grace and Paul was defining grace, is radically different than the way we are defining grace. That You're talking about his book, Paul and the Gift. Paul and the Gift. Correct. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And uh, he says that uh, grace, whereas we kind of preach it as unconditional, there's no strings attached, that that's kind of a, that's been birthed in the Enlightenment, uh, Kant and company, uh, Derrida. Uh, but if we actually go back to the first century when Paul is writing with these Jews, and uh, he even mentioned Seneca, that uh, uh, Paul is not going to say that grace is unconditional, uh, but that it's unconditioned you radically can't do anything to accept grace, but once you accept grace, there are these expectations that are tied. And so there are strings attached. And so that's been a huge um, boom that's been dropped in New Testament studies. Um, and so that would be one. And uh, similar to this uh, uh, is what we, 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 now that we're trying to figure out what grace means, what does faith mean? What does pistis mean? Uh, and so we kind of take it as belief or maybe as trust. And my friend E.J. Gupta has a book out, uh, Paul in the Language of Faith, and says, man, there's this mm-hmm. entire spectrum that we have to understand what faith means. And Scott McKnight uh, and Matthew Bates have also kind of uh, dropped this idea of it being allegiance rather than just trust. Um, and so for any of our listeners that are involved in Twitter, uh, and especially the theological Twitter sphere, uh, there's been quite the uh, raucous uh, of those in like the Gospel Coalition um, over against uh, McKnight and Bates who are going to say, hey, hey, we need to redefine what we mean by sola fide um, because faith uh, may not mean what we think it means, uh, mm-hmm. once again, to borrow from the Princess Bride. And I think both of those books that you uh, and those authors that you mentioned mm-hmm. are opening our eyes to the reality of community that you've already mm-hmm. talked about 
Joey, with the idea that our salvation is not only, it is this, but it's not only that we personally have a personal relationship with Jesus mm. Christ and our personal sins are forgiven, but that we are now members of Christ's body. Like both happen at the mm. same time. And so I think with um, Barclay's comments about Paul and the gift and how the, the condition, if you will, is relationship with mm. God, that mm. the gift in the ancient world was to, was to bring people together two people mm -hmm. together and that the yeah. obligation was not seen as a negative or didn't need to be seen mm -hmm. as a negative, mm -hmm. but rather was an opportunity that you got to know someone, you were connected with someone, there was someone you could rely on. And I think mm -hmm. that that allows for us to think about the corporate dimension of our, uh, of what Christ has done yeah. uh, in, a, in a way that's consistent with how the ancients would have, would have thought about it. And I think then, with that, there also is within the New Testament um, an interest, a growing interest, I think, in how the how these same questions can live out in the problems of our world. So we are seeing more about creation care. New Testament scholars are looking at, you know, how how do we take the the um, conversations in these letters or in the Gospels, in the Book of Acts, and and think about our world now mm. so that it's, whereas I think, boy, even a, a generation or two ago, the really, the lens really were, how, wh what are the finer points of soteriology? How do we know we're mm. saved? Now I think there's a sense in which this is, this is a collection of letters. This is a book, the New Testament, that gonna, gonna actually help us with our politics, help mm. us with our uh, doing of our everyday life, yeah. Mm. A far deeper well than we might have even imagined. Exactly. Hey, we're about out of time, uh, but what are some of your top reflections on your first year at Denver Seminary? I mean, disregard the fact that the provost is listening and is the co-host here, but um, you've been here. It always, it always yeah, is kind right. of interesting and helpful to see those of us who've been around for a while to see ourselves and see our community from the eyes of someone who is relatively newer to it. Um, well, I mentioned earlier having this learning the secret of contentment is when I came here, and that has to do with uh, even my office mate uh, next door, uh, my colleagues, uh, well, and the students. Yeah, uh, yeah. and so it, it really uh, and and I I, I mentioned that, but but it's really genuine. Um, the, the people here seeing uh, just that great balance that they have between faith and scholarship. Um, I think there are some places that you could go and get a lot, a lot of faith, but a little bitty scholarship, and there may be places you can go get a lot of scholarship, but a little bitty faith, but I think uh, we're we're getting there. If, if we're not, we're, we have the, the the best balance of both of those of any other seminary that I know of. Um, and so I'm happy to try to keep that balance where uh, we're doing that scholarship that you talked about earlier. Uh, that is preaching the gospel. That when people see our scholarship, uh, they just want to uh, end in a doxology. That uh, where similar like Paul in Romans 16, where if your theology doesn't lead you to worship, uh, then there's something wrong with it. And uh, we want our students to think the hard questions. We don't want to just tell them what to think, but to teach them how to think so they can process and uh, as they go on and to, to build the kingdom of God in the churches. So, yeah, it's, yeah. I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> so well said. Yeah. So I'm just hoping Lynn keeps me around for a long time. 
Yeah, you're a great next door neighbor. Yeah. You don't have anything to worry about, Joey. I'm not sure about the other person on this uh, podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm getting too old to care. So, yeah. Hey, we've been uh, interacting with uh, our our good friend and our New Testament uh, professor, Dr. Joey Dodson. Joey, we're so glad you've been able to spend time with us and um, look forward to what the Lord's going to do through your your faith and your preaching and your teaching and your, your writing and all aspects of your ministry in the years to come. Just a privilege to be along for the ride. So this is Engage 360. Again, I mean, you know that this is uh, Denver Seminary and we're always honored that you would uh, take a little bit of time out of your week to be with us on this podcast and hope you'll let us know if uh, something you hear has been of benefit to you and, and how so. You can email us podcast at denverseminary.edu is our email address. And on behalf of our entire production team and Dr. Lynn Kowick, uh, we want to thank you and hope that you'll join us again next week for another conversation. Take care.